This is Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Once upon a time, when Seattle was at the epicenter of the global grunge music phenomenon, there was a scrappy little paper called The Rocket covering it all from a front row seat. Jillian Gar is a freelance music journalist and author who started at the paper as a one-day-a-week volunteer office helper and worked her way up to senior editor. It was really about the only outlet at the time that was covering the independent cultural arts scene in Seattle, including music. She remembers the vital role the rocket played in a pre-internet era. You know, you think back to that time, that was the only way you could find out about things going on in Seattle. For musicians like Carrie Ockery of bands like Hammerbox and Goodness, the Rocket provided not just a place to be seen, but also helped foster a feeling of community among creatives in Seattle. You regularly would check it and would get really excited to see if you were in it. It was also what I utilized to meet the people who would become the first band I was in, which was Hammerbox. The Rocket was also a launching pad for visual artists. There were comics from Matt Groening and Linda Berry. NPR's Ann Powers started her career there, as did renowned poster artist Art Chantry. But until now, the paper's archives, spanning from 1979 to 2000, were only available to obsessive collectors or pack rats who retained physical copies, or folks willing to make the trek to a library on the University of Washington campus. That has all changed with the introduction of a new digital searchable archive of all 336 issues of The Rocket that's now available online. Charles R. Cross has written award-winning biographies of Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, and the Wilson Sisters of Heart. But before all that, he was the longtime owner and editor of The Rocket. And I met up with him this week to talk about why it was important to create this archive. And to illustrate, he pulled out a stack of old issues, each one a piece of Seattle music history. This is the most beloved cover of The Rocket. It's a cover with Mud Honey from March 1992, where we got them to recreate the image from the cover of Nevermind. They're in a pool chasing after a, a bucket of money. Soundgarden, they were on our cover more than any other local band, but this one's is March 1990. Uh, Pearl Jam, 1998, I did a piece on their new record then. This, this, this cover got me a lot of crap. Uh, it was, we got the band Candlebucks to dress up like Courtney Love because she had criticized them. And it's a story on Candlebox, Candlebox with Love, Courtney called me many times after that about that article. Um, This is the Kurt Cobain death issue. We made the decision when Kurt died to put his picture on the cover, there are no words, because there was really no word for that. Being on the cover of The Rocket was a huge deal for local bands. It was a step on the path towards bigger shows and more notoriety, not just in the local scene, but nationwide. And Charles acknowledges this was a different time, with so few options to get the word out, the stakes were high. 
I don't think people in today's world quite understand how a magazine could represent a community. There were always people who had things to bitch about with the rocket, mostly that their band was not on the cover. Occasionally, there's even one guy on Facebook today who is bitching constantly about the cover story that I wrote about him, which was a complete rave, wasn't nice enough. <laughs> and he's still upset about that and posting on social media on that. And I think it's 35 years ago or something when I wrote that story. But in that era, it gave a voice to a disparate community. You know, when The Rocket wrote about many different genres, it, it it's identified most with the Seattle bands that became big. But but we also literally broke Sir Mix-a-Lot. He was a kid living in an apartment in Rainier Beach when the Rocket writer who who essentially discovered him, you know, got his tape and went over to his house and Mix played him his first demos and we wrote the first story on him. So you can, in a bizarre way, thank us for Baby Got Back along with uh, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam. Even bands like Death Cab for Cutie later on got their first press ever in the Rocket. So let's go through a stack here just in front of us. What are we looking at? What do we have here? And um, what stands out to you when you actually physically go through these copies of the rocket? Well, I think one thing that surprises me, and I'm just randomly grabbing a rocket, and this one is uh, December 6, 1995. Alice in Chains is on the cover. I wrote the story. I went to the 211 Pool Hall, which no longer exists. So much of my life is based on these venues or places that are long gone. But the 211 was absolutely the coolest place ever in Seattle. But what strikes me the most looking at this paper now, it's uh, 56 pages, is just how much stuff is in there. Yeah, there's four or five pages on Alice in Chains, but there's... 30 bands that are reviewed in the review section, you know, records by everybody from the MC5 to, you know, local bands that didn't get written about anywhere else. And then you go to the back of it and there's three or four pages of classified ads where musicians wanted bands or advertising trying to find, you know, their their bass player, their drummer. You know, infamously, Kurt Cobain advertised in the paper, so did Hole, you know, a very early version of Alice in Chains. So, so many bands formed through the Rocket. My neighbor across the street, who I literally was walking to from a Rocket classified ad, he met some people and ultimately married his wife. He wouldn't have married his wife if there weren't Rocket musician wanted ads. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, there's Craigslist now. I think one of the differences with the paper that people don't understand is it was curated and the editors and the writers, the hip hop writer who wrote about Mix-a-Lot was a great writer with incredible taste. The internet has no curators and no gatekeepers. It allows everything to be found, but there's too much to find and there's no one to trust. With The Rocket, what people knew is if a local band made it to our cover, they were worth checking out. So when Alice in Chains made it to our cover, or when there was an interview inside with uh, the band Pluto, who I do not remember myself <laughs> from the Northwest in that time, they were worth checking out. What kind of responsibility did you feel for that curation? Because you were this 
as the editor, longtime owner of the Rocket, you were the clearinghouse for information for this scene. And creators were sharing information in the pages. Fans were learning where to go, how to listen, what to pay attention to. I mean, how did you feel about that responsibility at the time? Well, it was a responsibility. And it, it really mattered to people what was on the cover of The Rocket. And, you know, my friend John Keister also started at The Rocket, and he used to do circulation. And John and I used to drop off rockets. We'd drive around to, and that was a trip. You know, there's a chapter in my memoir about, you know, in 1986, every single club in town, we heard one minute of every band that was playing the night we dropped the rockets off. But you also got feedback from people on the rocket when you were the delivery person. And I later on made almost every employee do delivery runs to get that sense. And sometimes we put really obscure bands on the cover and the paper didn't get picked up, which meant the advertisers didn't get people buying their records or going to their shows. So there was a lot of demand and pressure as the publisher we had to do things that people would pick up and we had to write about what people wanted, but we also had to push the limits. So we put many bands on the cover before they were famous and helped them become famous. We also got criticism whenever we put someone like Van Halen on the cover. And I can guarantee that with Seattle musical tastes in the 80s, that Van Halen cover moved more than any local band you ever had seen. And it was kind of a funny story that Keister and I wrote that was comical. The paper wasn't always totally serious, but it also had some groundbreaking journalism. We had some great writers. There's one or two stories we did that, that really changed Seattle. You know, The Rocket also was a, wrote some groundbreaking journalism about the teen dance ordinance. You know, the paper became was always very leftist, but many of the issues that we were writing about, no one else did. No one cared that there was a law. When I tell people this, they think I am making it up. It's like Footloose. At the era that Seattle was perceived as having the greatest music scene in the world, we had laws that no club could essentially have underage kids dance without paying these outrageous insurance fees and all these other things. Seattle did everything it could to try to stop all ages music. And the Rocket was more than any other place, the voice of arguing against that. We even had, and again, this sounds like I'm science fiction, but we had a city attorney for a while who said we couldn't put posters up on telephone poles, mm. that that was a danger. So issues like that, the Rocket was always at the forefront. And at that point, there really wasn't any other alternative paper in town. We were the voice of music and arts. Yeah. Um, we also wrote movie reviews and we got William Burroughs to write for us. Susan Orlean wrote a story for The Rocket. We have a lot of really quality writers write for us for almost nothing. I want to talk about writing style and highlighting one of your leads from a 1990s profile of the band The Fastbacks to do so. And this was a lead that you had, or a story that you had surfaced recently on Substack. And here's that lead. I'll, I'll take the liberty of reading it. There are no dead cats in New York City's Times Square today. That's a good thing because Kurt Block of the Fastbacks says there are places where you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Fastbacks drummer. I'm, <laughs> I just love... I love how you get into that. I love just like the 
tone and the humor and the style that you brought to these profiles, what were your influences? And is this something that you felt like was kind of a standard at the Rockard or did everybody have their own style? Everybody had their own style, but, but, but you were allowed as a writer to have a voice. That's one thing the Rocket gave everyone who contributed to it. We valued the voice of the photographer, Charles Peterson, whose indimitable style began with stuff he shot for the Rocket and stuff that's become the most famous photographs of that era. Linda Berry, who's a, a great, unbelievable storyteller and won the MacArthur Genius Grant, she was encouraged to have her voice in her comics. And it was the same for writers. So writers were allowed to have a voice. I had gone to the UW and didn't actually graduate from the communication school, but took classes there. But I was constantly up against this news journalism shouldn't have a voice in it. But I'd met Tom Wolfe when I was in college. I'd also met Hunter S. Thompson and was his bodyguard one day, which is a hell of a story. Um, and I was fascinated by that, the new journalism. The Rocket was the place in Seattle that allowed that to happen. In fact, there's very few stories in The Rocket that don't have a tone. A little different, and I don't want to necessarily criticize some later day papers, but there were some latter day papers where all the stories were about me. And the me stories can seem whiny. At The Rocket, sometimes the writer is inserted, but there always is a point of view and it's less narcissistic and whiny. We felt like we were trying to change culture with our journalism, and we were also trying to capture this moment and inserting yourself into it as a writer and coming up with something that wasn't a who, what, why, when, where, which is what newspapers were in those days, was, was how we spoke to our audience. When The Rocket began, the Seattle Weekly was in town and one reason we began is the weekly only wrote about opera and classical music can you imagine seattle's biggest alternative paper did not write about rock and roll <laughs> but of course the hotbed opera scene was really well covered really you know not that seattle hasn't had great opera no but, shade on the opera i'm just or, saying or the symphony but yeah in but, terms of national influence you know what was really driving pop culture eventually became what you were covering. And what I always felt, and so did other people at The Rocket, is that we were writing about an alternative in youth culture that was one, unique to Seattle, because nothing else was like what Seattle arts was. And two, we were writing about culture that mattered to the wider culture. And the crazy thing was that what we wrote about in the 80s and 90s eventually became the dominant culture in the whole world, which, again, still amazes me. Michael Dugan, he's a deceased cartoonist who was a brilliant storyteller, but he gave an interview a few years ago before he died where he had the best description of the rocket that I ever heard from anybody. He said, the rocket created this like Emerald City fantasy world where we wrote as if there was a Seattle music scene when there really wasn't. There was no capacity to make a living in the 80s with all the restrictions. But we made it sound like there really was a music scene. And all these men and women grew up believing that. And they created it because they believed in this dream we had sold them. And I thought that was a very beautiful way to describe that. You know, we acted as if the rocket was 
a huge thing, and it was in Seattle. Our address in our magazine, we listed it as the Rocket Towers, and people would show up at our office, which was the second floor of a two-story building and go where where i'm here you know there's no cell phones then, where's the towers where's the towers you know <laughs> and that was the way we operated and that's a great example of you know we were just a a crew of people some of whom gathering unemployment every other month you know you'd get paid at the rocket one month and get unemployment the next no one made any money in that world but we believed in what we did and we created a change in culture by giving these bands something to shoot for, and they had the talent. How did the archive project come together, and what kind of work did you do to finally make this stuff available? Because for so long, you had to have a copy, like these sitting right here on right. this side table. I had donated all my copies to the University of Washington Library, Go Huskies. But one bizarre thing happened. People started cutting parts out of it which really is nasty, taking a razor blade and cutting the Nirvana story the out of copies the copies that were in the library? In their, oh, no. like, you know, Northwest room. And, yeah. And uh, physical access is not... We live in a digital age. And there are several Instagram pages where people just post stuff from the rocket. Those aren't mine. I, I don't have time for that. But there's been a fascination with this era. I also started getting approached as time went by. The rocket went out of business in 2000. We're now 24 years later. But I started getting approached more and more by people who said, hey, my band was in the rocket. I, I don't have a copy of that. Can I get one? Or even creepier, my parents were in a band and they're dead. And can I please get a copy of that? And I'm like, I you know, there's no archive of it. So it felt like it was the right thing to do. I had some offers to do it commercially. I, I, I didn't follow that. I felt like it should be a resource for the area and the University of Washington, the state of Washington. Uh, it was a massive project to digitize. It wasn't supposed to be done so early. My plan, it was supposed to be done like maybe by the summer. And my plan was to have some giant party that would be like the Seattle Music High School reunion to announce it. And it got done quicker than expected. And I still may have that party at the end of the summer, you know, have people meet that aren't meeting at a funeral. You talked about the fact that there's a lot of people alive today that, you know, didn't get to see the rocket when you know it was it was publishing. I think Gen Z now has this fascination with the material that the rocket covered. I mean, you see, you walk down the street in major cities, and kids, young kids who were not alive when these bands, you know, were first going, and some of the bands are no no longer. They're wearing Nirvana T-shirts. They're wearing you know Alice in Chains T-shirts, and I think that this archive is going to just be more of a further resource for them to look back on this era and kind of understand what was happening. You know, just as a final thought, why do you think that this material endures so much, especially in the Gen Z imagination today? And um, what do you hope for these archives? What they'll mean to people who are, are looking and understand, trying to understand this era? Right. Well, I'm writing a whole book somewhat explaining your answer to that. <laughs> Summarize but, your entire book yes. for me right now, Charles. <laughs> but I think in a way, there, it, we were the last generation, the, that generation, to develop an authentic culture without the internet. 
without people paying attention. And if Nirvana had played at the OK Hotel and it was on the internet the next day, it would have changed everything. Seattle music in the 80s and early 90s developed organically with one media outlet that covered it, the Rocket, there, you know. And it developed with this cohesive scene of everybody knowing everybody. And there were rules to that Seattle. You couldn't act like a big shot. You, no one had money. No one acted like they were a big deal. The quality of your music was the only thing that mattered in the world of the Rocket. And everybody wanted to create quality records and do quality and do great shows. And once money came and fame and attention, it, it took it all away. But that idea of those last days of analog, where the culture is only the physical world. With the rocket I write in my book, we could only reach the people that we could get a copy of the paper to. It, it was our world, it was our physical world, and it was all that mattered to us. And eventually the internet and Jeff Bezos and the other things that were also created in Seattle destroyed that culture and monetized it. We were that last authentic culture before the algorithm took over. The only algorithm at the rocket was what I wanted in the paper. The other editors wanted in the paper. There was good and bad about that. There are certainly some bad calls we made. But you could put a face to it. When somebody was upset about what they were seeing or didn't understand what they were being served in that paper, you understood that there was an editorial mind, a human mind behind it. And hey, they could write into you or show up at the rocket towers me, they did. and get mad. <laughs> they did. But it, you could touch it and talk to it. And you it wasn't it wasn't an algorithm, you know. And like you said, this was the last generation that really got to experience their culture being developed without that influence. You know, Allison Chains is written in a cover story here we 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 love i love that band that band has one of the longest legacies they weren't as big as nirvana or pearl jam but their effect on radio today is still really strong but we wrote a negative article on them or we called them crybabies in the rocket and the two days later we got a fedex box at the rocket and we opened it up this is going to be gross Inside were baby bottles. We called them babies filled with the band's urine. So uh, the rocket was both loved and reviled at times. Uh, could I sell those on eBay if I would have saved them? I don't know, probably. But in the, in the rocket- That's something for the archive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there was a physical world, you know, it, 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 it existed. And all these people were real people. Everyone came in our office. Uh, that is the essence of what Seattle was. And it's all been lost in the digital world where you don't interact with people, where there isn't a physical paper you pick up. We've lost so much in the digital world. It's great that we can hear this on a digital radio and radio still exists, but there really was something about the magic of print that I think our entire society is losing in many ways. Charles R. Cross is an award-winning author of biographies on Kurt Cobain, the Wilson Sisters and Hart, and Jimi Hendrix. He was the longtime owner of The Rocket and worked on archiving every issue of the magazine, also the longtime editor. Charles, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. This is Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Once upon a time,
And before we go, we wanted to add this quick final story from author Jillian Garr, a former senior editor at The Rocket. She told Soundside about scoring an interview with Courtney Love in the fall of 1992, after the infamous Vanity Fair article that accused Kurt and Courtney of using heroin heavily, including while Courtney was pregnant. I said to the publicist, look, this is what we'll do. You know, she's had this press, but this will give her the chance to give her side of the story. After a lot of back and forth and a call out of the blue from Courtney's whole bandmate. We went down to um, the Four Seasons where we had tea and uh, crumpets and cucumber sandwiches. And she brought down Francis in a kind of a small cradle (laughs) and did the interview there. That was October 4th. The night that Nirvana made a surprise appearance at the Crocodile Cafe, I remember the next day coming into the rocket, the art director said, well, Courtney's publicist called and said she's not doing the interview. And I said, well, you can call her back and tell her that she did the interview, not that she agreed to do it. She did it. It's done. It happened last night. I have it on tape. Pre-social media, pre-blogs, this was a huge deal. The Rocket was the only American outlet Courtney talked to. And she did it specifically because it was a Seattle-based publication. That interview landed in the November 1st, 1992 edition of The Rocket in a story called Love in the Afternoon, finally available online. I don't think that story ever really got the, the credit that it deserved, although I could probably say that about most of my Rocket stories. We'll have a link on our website to the Rocket Archive. You can also go to tinyurl.com slash rocketpaper if you want to check it out. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.